Imagine you're in ancient Athens around 410 BC, walking through the local market. There, an older man approaches you and begins to pepper you with questions. They start off simple enough, but by the end, you end up annoyed, disagreeing with what you first claimed to be true. This man questioning you was probably Socrates, the most famous and influential philosopher of all time. But Socrates is surrounded in mystery. He never wrote anything down, and we don't even know where his beliefs stopped being documented and his student, Plato's belief, started being included. Scholars don't even agree if Socrates actually existed. Socrates' quest was a simple one, to challenge his and others' beliefs to make sure his society didn't remain complacent. And that simple goal was what ultimately led to his conviction and death. Hello, and welcome to Open Door Philosophy. I'm Mr. Parsons' former philosophy student, Andrew Graziano. And I'm Andrew's former philosophy teacher, Derek Parsons. We're just here making philosophy accessible for the people, right? Yeah. Yeah, philosophy for the people. And uh, no one is more fundamental to philosophy, nor as much for the people, as Socrates, who's the focus of our episode today. So we're going to talk about who Socrates was, uh, what his main philosophical projects were, and, and certainly about his life and death, and why he's, frankly, probably the, the one philosopher you know if you know anything about philosophy. So Mr. Parsons, what do you think of when you first think of of Socrates? Well, just stereotypically, I think of an old man in a toga uh, in set in ancient Greece with all the Greek architecture and everything. And, and that's probably what most people think. Now, I think a whole lot of other things when I think of Socrates too, but that's because I, I know Socrates pretty well. So some of those things would include uh, his ability to question people, his the Socratic method that, that some might be familiar with. I think of some of his famous quotes that we'll get into this episode. And I think of him as being like the OG of philosophy, <laughs> right? He's the guy. He's the, it originates with him, really, at least as philosophy as it came to be known in the ancient classical world. Yeah. And frankly, for all of the rest of Western philosophy. Yeah, even even a quote that we love to hark on and comes straight from Socrates, the, uh, the purpose of philosophy, or not even the purpose, but uh, that meaning of philosophy, the word philosophy, as we come to know it, comes from Socrates, the love of wisdom. That's from Socrates. He said it, I think, in his apology when he's talking about what his purpose in life was. So we know who Socrates is, probably. We know a little bit about him, but Usually when we think of Socrates, we think of his later years, his years right before his death or even the year of his death, where his most famous dialogues come from. But most of the time we don't really talk about his life before philosophy, what he was doing or how he even became an annoying guy who questions people in, in the marketplace. <laughs> um, and I, I think all that guy go away. I'm trying to buy tomatoes. <laughs> Oh, wait, there were no tomatoes in ancient Greece. Sorry. <laughs> Grapes or something? From, yeah, those, those came know. from America. Uh, <laughs> wait, really? I didn't realize. That's cool. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. So no pizza in Italy. No, no, no sauce in Italy until <laughs> exploration of the new world. Really? Huh. Yeah. You know, learn something new every day, right? Yeah. Well, anyway, what we do know about Socrates' early years 
is quite little. We know that Socrates had a father, of course, like every contingent being in the world, uh, had a father. <laughs> Sophroniscus was his father's name. Uh, but we don't really know too much about his father and like how they were. We just know that his father's name, he mentions him somewhere. And we know that his father was like a stonemason or like a statue maker or something like that. And just by ancient traditions of the time, what that would probably mean was that Socrates took up the trade of stonemasonry. And so we can think of Socrates, at least in his early years, as a stonemason. Something, too, that is often, I guess this is mythologically attributed to Socrates that I always thought was cool. In the Euthyphro, which we'll talk about a little bit more later, Socrates mentions that his one of his great ancestors was the designer of the labyrinth and architect, innovator, Daedalus. Oh, Daedalus, yeah. yeah. So that's the um, that's uh, the Minotaur story, yes? Yeah, I think the, the labyrinth, he created the labyrinth or something. Gosh, who was the king? I guess the king, king. was Daedalus, wasn't it? Uh, I think the king was Minos. Yeah, King Minos. Minos, Minos yeah. This is the Minoans. Yeah. Or Min- how, do you, how do you pronounce that? Is it Minoans or Minoans? Minoans. <laughs> Let's just say Minoans. The Minoans. And his, his son was also the one who... Like they're escaping uh, Minos because that guy's kind of a jerk, you know. And do you think this is like the equivalent? How like all Texas kids are like, I'm somehow related to Davy Crockett. <laughs> maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe so. That might be true. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. It's I'm it's it's possible. I'm sure. I think that uh, Plato might have been attributing Daedalus and Socrates together because. Both of them were just so smart. So that might be a reason. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. But we know that Socrates may claimed in a dialogue that he was descended from great Daedalus. And just one more thing before we move into more philosophical stuff about him is that Socrates, it's mentioned a few times in from different authors as well that Socrates fought in the Persian, no. I believe it's is it the Peloponnesian War? Yeah. So, so we do know from a, a variety of texts and from different authors at well that Socrates fought in the Peloponnesian War, like many young men or all young men would have done in the 420s or so when the Pel- Peloponnesian War was going on. And we know from that those accounts that many people claim that Socrates was very courageous. Um, when there was a treat, he would not run run away. He would just kind of walk back when there was a, a massive storm or when it was really cold. He wouldn't be huddled under his blankets. He would be just sitting out and enjoying nature. So I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, it really is. And, and you know, for someone as has the stature of Socrates, I do like this early history, even though it's sort of scant, right? Like, so he was a stonemason, which is uh, I mean, I don't want to say that's, you know, a simple job. It's a hard labor job. Took some muscles and some skill, but it's a it's a hard job, right? It's a physical job. And then, you know, here he was as a very honorable soldier in the Peloponnesian War, which for people who aren't familiar was essentially a Greek civil war, largely between two alliances, the uh, Athenian alliance and the Spartan alliance. The Spartans won the Peloponnesian War. That's right. They took over Athens and they put yeah. a reign of 30 tyrants in. 
And the 30 tyrants were pretty brutal. They killed 1,500 or so people. Some of those appointed to be the 30 tyrants were some of Socrates' old followers, mm-hmm. namely Critias, who Socrates has an account with uh, in, in a few dialogues. So Socrates was ordered by the 30 tyrants to go bring this famous man who was a very just guy before the 30 tyrants to be executed. And Socrates refused, not wanting to uh, be unjust. And I think the guy got off scot-free. Socrates surprisingly got off without punishment. But many of the people who were in, where it's speculated that some, many of the people who were in the trial of Socrates, they weren't the 30 tyrants, but they were like friends of the 30 tyrants or something. So, yeah, let me let me say a little more about that too. We've somehow spiraled into talking about the Peloponnesian War and Socrates' death. So we'll go ahead and expand on it here. Well, this is a spoiler alert in case uh, people are not familiar with this story of Socrates. Uh, he is executed by the Athenian people. And so this Peloponnesian War is, is a big backdrop of it, as uh, Andrew has been saying. For sure. But to give a little more context to it, and I'm pulling this from like the recesses of my brain when I used to teach history. Hopefully I'm right. I think the Peloponnesian War lasted 28 years. Yeah. Like this was an incredibly long, brutal war that really just left all of Greece, no matter who really won the thing, left all of Greece just completely decimated. And it's one of the reasons Alexander the Great can take over Greece uh, so easily. And Athens, who lost the Peloponnesian War, right? Like, uh, like Andrew says, these 30 tyrants come in. And all of that is just this incredibly dramatic backdrop like Athens hasn't just lost a war like they have lost a civil war and their entire economy food stock everything is just a really bad time and to make matters worse this rule of 30 is 30 tyrants it doesn't even last all that long uh, it lasted a couple of years okay, so like 28 years of war you know and these 30 tyrants take over and then that doesn't last very long and then the Athenians take back control of their uh, of their government and so Gosh, it all just seems so empty yeah, and horrible. So that's the backdrop in which uh, Socrates is tried. Yep. Very happy stuff. You've heard us mention in other episodes, uh, perhaps on Socrates and Plato, mentioning a, uh, an interlocutor in some of the dialogues named Alcibiades. He was an Athenian general during this Peloponnesian War. So just a little, a little tie in there. Yeah, Alcibiades was a, someone who loved Socrates just a crazy, crazy general who who is pretty bad, pretty bad person. Switch. But a great general, like he really turned the war around for a short period of time. Yeah, like Athens was really losing, and then he came on the scene, like got their navy whipped into shape, and uh, and really turned the Peloponnesian War around in the middle of it to where it seemed like Athens might win the thing. He's a little bit overambitious at the end and tried to yep. take over Syracuse, and um, yep, that was his downfall. Alcibiades was known for being, and this was something Socrates talked with him a lot about. He's like very supposed to be very beautiful. It's a it's a fool character to Socrates, because mm-hmm. um, Socrates was always described as being like incredibly ugly. And Alcibiades was supposed to be like the most beautiful man in Athens, and Alcibiades just had a problem with uh, temptation. He was led by his desires, by honor, and just a huge huge foil to. Um, to Socrates, but Alcibiades like switched sides in the war like five times and then left did, Persia yeah. and then he betrayed Persia and then some spies or something were sent to assassinate him and he died in like a fire or something. 
Uh, so crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, we're really spinning off here. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. The problem with Alcibiades is that uh, he was good and he knew he was good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, that's important for Socrates, too, because Socrates has no students. That's something that's made explicit by him in the dialogues. Because Socrates, if he has students, that comes with the a connotation that they're paying for his tut- tutelage. And Socrates never accepts a dime from anyone to be taught. It's a distinction from the sophists, these really smart rhetoricians who you know, would go around and charge people to be taught. Socrates never accepted money from students. So it was just like these ri- usually rich young men following him around. And learning from him. And Socrates would try to teach them things um, such as how to live a good life and, and challenge them. But Alcibiades was one of these young men, but we see many times throughout many dialogues that he's strayed, strays from strays from uh, Socrates' advice. Yeah, he's a real fallen hero. Yeah. And on the subject of followers, you started the episode with asking me, you know, what do I know about Socrates? So I taught world history for like 15 years. Every time we hit Greece, the one thing you're going, well, not the one thing, but one of the things you're always going to run into is that this is where philosophy began. Greece is where philosophy began. And without doubt, take any standard world history textbook and you're going to have Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle all right there. It'll be a special little section. And these are like the three big philosophers from from ancient Greece. But unlike Plato, who was the follower of Socrates, and unlike Aristotle, who was the student of Plato, both of those guys found schools, whereas Socrates doesn't do that. Uh, he had no official students, like you said. And so really what he had was followers, I guess, or you could even call them disciples, who were very loyal to him. And, you know, when it comes to knowing about Socrates, because Socrates never wrote anything down. We know about Socrates from these followers, right? And other members of the Athenian public at that time. So let's talk about that for a minute, um, his followers and how we, how we know about Socrates. There's three primary sources that deal directly with Socrates in his own time, the most famous being Plato, who is probably what most people know Socrates from. Then there's a famous historian and military leader named Xenophon, who corroborated many of the accounts that Plato provided and also talked about Socrates in a little bit more historical context. And Plato and Xenophon were both followers or and friends with, with Socrates. And then the last person we know about Socrates from is uh, the playwright Aristophanes, who made this humorous and and kind of critiquing play about Socrates called The Clouds, where um, Socrates is depicted as kind of this lunatic who is just trying to make people weak and and use rhetoric to convince people that they are, to to show them how they can win any argument and and just make them kind of weak, weak people. Those are the three accounts that we know Socrates by. I'd say Plato is very, Plato is a very lyrical, very um, cool account. We'll talk about that more in our next episode. And Xenophon is a more, you know, historical, fun, or or not fun, historical and dry account. No, not fun. Uh, (laughs) 
when we're thinking about the philosophy of Socrates, we're going to primarily focus on Plato because that's where more of the philosophically rich dialogues occur. And those are really the contemporary accounts that we have of Socrates, uh, those who knew him while he was alive. Socrates is mentioned almost endlessly in any type of philosophical school that follows after his death. Uh, So whether we're talking about Stoics or Epicureans or Cynics or, or anyone from Plato and Aristotle's school, I mean, just this morning I was reading Epictetus, who is a second century Stoic, and he mentions uh, Socrates all over the place. So even though those aren't firsthand accounts of Socrates, Socrates is evident in so many works of great thinkers throughout the entire classical period. We mentioned in the intro that uh, many are even unsure if Socrates was a real person. And the reason we think that he's a real person and I kind of fluffed this up in the in the intro. Most scholars think Socrates was a real person because we have so many contemporary and after accounts of Socrates and who similarly corroborate the trial and, and just kind of basic things about Socrates' life. So that's the reason, historical reasons that we have for knowing about Socrates' historical existence. Well, you mentioned that he was this annoying guy that sort of ran all over the place and just questioned people all the time. Uh, this is later in Socrates' life, uh, after his stonemasonry career and military career. Oh, I guess we should mention it. He was married and had children, if I recall. That's correct, yeah. right? He did have children. Yeah. There's some speculation as to how well he cared for them. Yeah. <laughs> I think he enjoyed yeah. walking around the Agora too much, uh, talking with uh, yeah. talking with people. But anyway, he was married and, and had at least one child. I think two. Oh, yeah. I was going to say yeah, two. I think he had two child, children. Yeah. But anyway, the Agora, let's get to this. So later in Socrates' life, when he really begins doing philosophy, like when we think of Socrates, the philosopher, he hung out in the Agora. So what's the Agora, Andrew? The Agora is the central marketplace in ancient Athens. Just think of like a marketplace, a huge marketplace where you buy commerce and and farmers and central sell their their produce and and such. That's just basically the main meeting place, the main area, the main hangout spot for people who are unemployed of ancient Athens. Yeah. So the Agora was the place where Everyone had to go to, unless you had slaves and you sent them, which I'm sure was the case for some. But like the Agora was was the place. I don't even know what to compare it in contemporary society. Think of like, well, I don't know, maybe back in the 80s and 90s or something like like malls, you know, like like everyone went to the mall. Everyone hung out at the mall. You're going to see everyone at the mall because it was a cool place to be. Uh, But in the Agora is even more egalitarian than that. Right. Like so everyone from peasants to slaves to politicians to artisans to i mean just everyone from uh, every walk of life in athens at some point goes through the agora that's where you went to get your stuff and so this is where socrates does his philosophy how does socrates do his philosophy in the agora do you like set up shop and like stand on a stand on a stool and like preach or uh, how did he do philosophy he definitely doesn't open a shop he doesn't have enough money to But usually the dialogue will give some kind of context, either Socrates narrating or the story will just pick up 
And that's interesting for a literary purpose, but we're not a literary podcast. So, But Socrates would usually either be in the agora, find someone who's like interesting to him or be called over by one of his followers or a person, be interested in famous sophists who'd come to town, or he'd be called away from the agora where he was previously questioning someone. And his method is quite simple for most of his dialogues. Now I'm borrowing, borrowing like the apology and, and symposium for, for, for just clarity's sake, but his method is, is basically he asks a person, his interlocutor, a question about something pretty basic that that person is supposed to be an expert in. They're always going to be experts for the most part. And we're a self-proclaimed expert. And his point is basically he wants to test if they're actually an expert or not. If they can keep a coherent view, then they're an expert. If they can't, then they're not an expert and we shouldn't derive any value from what they're saying. And so what he does is quite simple. He makes them make a claim. Let's make that claim, whatever it is, just call it claim A. And basically, he'll just ask them a series of questions And 99% of the time, he'll lead them back to that claim A, but they will be disagreeing with their original claim. So we'll just say not claim A is what they end up with. And then he gives them the opportunity to revise their thought. And then it just kind of repeats around A prime, and then they'll return to not A prime. And then at the end, someone will get kind of annoyed who Socrates is questioning because they haven't been able to provide a sufficient account of whatever, um, and they will leave. <laughs> and that whole method is called an elenchus, just kind of this back and forth question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been popularized over the years, uh, even in educational circles. You know, I hear, I hear teachers talk about it, the Socratic method. In fact, uh, just recently I read a book called The Socratic Method, a practitioner's handbook by Ward Farnsworth. Oh, nice. uh, came out in 2021. Uh, he's a UT lawyer. He's yeah, go ahead. UT law. Yeah. yeah. No, I was just going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it really breaks down the Socratic method and exactly how Socrates utilizes it and uh, how it can be a very useful tool for, for people today as well, individually, like for yourself. But yeah, he just like Andrew said, one of the main tactics he would use when discussing claim A, whatever claim the person is making, is he would have them clarify their terms. And he would take the clarification that they offer and then begin asking questions of that clarification by either making it more, by asking it to be more specific or being more broad about it. So, you know, if, if you're talking about like, what is justice? And uh, a person says, uh, justice is treating someone fairly. And Socrates is like, well, then what would you call fairly? Um, and then the person would give an answer to that. I don't know what it would be. Something like, uh treating someone uh, with, with kindness and generosity. And then Socrates was like, well, who should this be applied to? And the person might say, well, only to people who aren't slaves. Uh, you know, and then you just keep on going down this road to where we clarify, 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 to distill the argument yeah. down to where, like Andrew said, the interlocutor, by the time they're done, looks at their original claim and and Socrates has kind of turned it on their head. But the brilliant thing is Socrates doesn't do it. He just leads the person to that conclusion that, uh, that their initial claim is inaccurate. So anyway, the, the Socratic method, uh, it's a great book, but also really illustrates how Socrates 
conducted his philosophy and why it was so annoying because <laughs> for a lot of people, uh, because, well, now they're frustrated and they kind of look like maybe an idiot uh, for having thought what they thought or, or maybe uh, a jerk or something. Another thing we mentioned in the intro is that Socrates, because he was so annoying, Socrates ended up being convicted and put to death. There was two charges against him, corrupting the youth and being impious. Well, let's unpack both of those both of those charges real quick. Sure. Yeah. So, so corrupting sure. the youth. Oh, by the way, how annoying do you have to be for like the someone to bring you to court because you're asking too many questions or whatever? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Now, we did mention the that's political true. context of the time with the Peloponnesian War. But yeah, this is one of the things that's interesting about the trial of Socrates is that he's brought to court for these two charges. And so let's talk. Yeah, go ahead and talk about those, Andrew, and, and the validity of them. The first one being impious, which is failing to acknowledge the gods that the city acknowledges and in introducing new deities. So failing to acknowledge the gods that the city acknowledges, basically charging him with being an atheist. And then the second one, introducing no new deities, basically that charge wrapped into one is that he's denying the gods that Athens holds and bringing in his new ones. The reason that they were claiming that Socrates was bringing new deities was because Socrates always said that he had this daemon, this spirit who would tell him or would be silent when he should not act. So it would basically be his like warning, telling him not to do, not to be tempted by something, his, his Socrates sense. And claiming that he has this spirit, and he even mentions it in his apology about the spirit and, and goes into detail more about it. But I think they were taking to be the charge of him introducing new gods and failing to acknowledge the gods of the city this one's a little bit political mud throwing on Socrates. Socrates is quite clear that he believes in some some kind of the gods. He makes an argument that his point of questioning was to like remove the clarity of a man or something for the gods. Or and so I think that one is a little bit of mudslinging. We can talk about corrupting the youth, but do you want to say anything about that impiety charge? Yeah, I'm, it's obviously a trumped up charge. Socrates at worst, believes in some type of benign and abstract providence that guides the universe uh, that he refers to as God. And all these philosophers from this era believed in a, a, a guiding presence of some kind. So it's just, you know, it's, just, uh, it's just not the particular gods that the Athenians preferred. And I will say, in this era, it was very important to honor the gods, like publicly, like civically, uh, even more so during the Roman Empire, it becomes a very imperial type of religion. But Athena was the uh, patron goddess of Athens, and, you know, citizens would be expected to pay homage to her once a year. Otherwise, you know, tragedy would befall the city. So while it is a trumped up charge, not honoring the state gods it was important. But it's ridiculous to say that Socrates didn't believe in a type of god or gods. The next charge of corrupting the youth may be a little bit more likely, but Socrates maybe has a little bit more convincing argument depending who you ask. 
So the reason they charged him with that is because all of Socrates' followers started to go around and test their hand at, at, at Olenkus, and they would go around questioning politicians and such and being annoying too. <laughs> so all of those followers were going around and, and being little Socrateses in their free time, which probably was very annoying. And when you're going around and, and annoying all the people on the jury, you know, that's probably not the best thing to do. So those, those are the two charges. And we don't have to hold it, hold it back. Socrates was sentenced to death by 30 or so people. Well, 30 or so yeah. votes. Uh, yeah. So the way that so the votes. Athenian justice system or, or trial system worked at, at this point in its history is nothing like we think of trials today. The accuser would come in and they would say what their charges are and why. And the defendant would be able to come in then and offer a defense. And then that's it. And people vote. And the amount of jurors at Socrates' trial was a little over 500. So 501. 501. Okay. So it's not like, you know, a jury of 12 people and there's a judge and, you know, we get this back and forth and point and counterpoint and all, all this sort of stuff. No, no. C- accuser comes in, states the case, defendant states their case, people vote and we're done. But it was always a very large jury, right? Yeah. So yeah, 501 people were at his trial and he was found guilty by 30 votes. I don't know. I don't remember how many votes it was. It was... Plato says that if it had just been 30 of the votes had been otherwise, Socrates would have been um, quitted. Yeah. So this jury kind of thing Mr. Parsons was talking about, it works in two stages. First, they, they vote on if the defendant is, is innocent or guilty. So they've convicted him. They've said he's, he's guilty. And then they have to vote on his sentence. So both sides will present a sentence. Socrates said that he should be given free meals at the... <laughs> Pritoneum every day, like once a day for the for for the rest of his life, and and behold, is like a basically on the equivalent of like a, a great athlete or something in the city, and shows Socrates's humor, um, and then he also agreed to pay like three thousand drachmas or something as well, which was I think one drachma was the equivalent of a day's wage. So his students were fronting that for him, and, and that was a lot of money uh, back then. And the prosecutor suggested the death penalty, assuming that Socrates would just claim exile, which was, the, which was usually the penalty in response to the death penalty. And that's pretty much what the prosecutors assumed the jury would agree on. They would agree to exile Socrates, not to kill him. Because um, killing someone in, in the ancient times was kind of rare. Exile was very much more common. And the jury voted, it's, it's a ridiculous charge to get free food and just to pay like a, a pretty large fine. But the jury, a 501 jury, voted to, to send him to death. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and I kind of want to paint this scene here, right? So, so this trial, there's 500 people there. Think of a Greek amphitheater. Think of this sort of stadium-type seating. And here's Socrates standing here at the bottom of it on the stage, if you will, and all these people surrounding him. And Socrates does say all kinds of really arrogant, in-your-face type things about Uh, like, yeah, I actually shouldn't be sentenced to death. I should be given free meals because of the good things that I do for the city of Athens. You know, he's totally being uh, an arrogant jerk. 
And there's some speculation as to why that is. I think it's because he knew which way this was going to go. So like, let's go out with a bang. Although we will talk about here in a minute, uh, Plato, who records this for us, perhaps how Plato might have portrayed Socrates. And maybe that has something to do with it. But I can also think of, you know, when Socrates says these really in-your-face type comments, it's not like this crowd was sitting in silence. They were probably responding to what he says. Uh, he's sure. like, yeah, you guys should give me free meals for the rest of my life because of what I provide. And I can hear like people, boo, you know, booing or like, yeah, give me a break, <laughs> Socrates or whatever. Uh, or maybe some people for sure. cheering for him and stuff like this. I, I doubt this was like some solemn court case. This for like sure. the stuff that Socrates is bringing up. You know, he talks about politicians specifically. He talks about artists. He talks about poets. He talks about all of these groups of people and essentially sure. making them look like fools. So yeah. I'm sure it was a really rowdy crowd and he probably didn't do himself any favors. It's 100% right. And I don't think this is as important to mention, but because I think we've hit the meat of it. But Socrates had the opportunity to escape his death. I think we've mentioned this in a past episode, but he had the opportunity to escape from his death, but chose to stay and face his death because he believes that it would be unjust for him to do an unjust thing. And he would rather die a pure, good man than corrupt his soul. Yeah. Again, speaking this character. So let's talk about the sources for this, these uh, five dialogue series from Plato that essentially chronicles of Socrates' process of the trial. Let's talk about it. Yeah. There's the Euthyphro, which is when Socrates is being called to kind of like this initial court for the first time. And it's briefly mentioned that's not really the purpose of the dialogue, but we've we've done the Euthyphro, yeah. right? And it's like the morning of, right? The morning of the trial? It's maybe maybe the morning of, maybe like a few weeks Mm -hmm, before mm -hmm. uh, the trial, just to see if like the charges would even stick. It was like Mr. Parsons said, 501 jury is a huge amount of people. They'd all be paid for their time. So the court, the bolus had to make sure that it was worth even having a trial for. So that was kind of the indictment. It was the indictment. They were seeing if there was enough evidence. And then we moved to the apology straight from the Euthyphro where Socrates' trial and conviction occurs. Then there's the Crito, which um, it chronicles Socrates' ability to escape. And that's where he ha- Crito comes to him and says, I p- bribe the guard, you can escape. Let's go. Socrates is- says no, and he explains why. And then there's the Phaedo, which is um, basically the death scene of Socrates. He drinks the-, the last moment with his friends. He drinks the hemlock, talks about the soul. And he dies. Yeah. So this typically, you know, if you go on Amazon or something like that, you they usually package these five dialogues together in a single volume. There's a whole bunch of dialogues by Plato. And sometimes, you know, you'll see a complete collection of Plato's dialogues or whatever. But you can get this five dialogue series in its own volume. And we'll post that on the on the website. But the apology is the trial itself. Now, all of these dialogues are written by Plato, the student, or rather the follower of Socrates, very devoted follower. So let's talk about the influence of Plato on this retelling of Socrates' trial. You know, did Plato uh, embellish? He more than likely embellished a a few things, dramatized um, a few points. 
crystallized Socrates' philosophy. There's obviously this huge um, artistic choice that Plato takes not including the accuser's speech. So we have no clue how compelling that was or anything. Socrates references it, but we don't have it. But we know that it probably was somewhat to what Plato actually said, because we can cross of, cross-reference uh, Xenophon's own Plato apology. And, and they're quite similar. A few things are different, but they're very small things. Usually the main kind of arc of the trial is, is quite similar. And that's how we know that the content is, is probably the same. Now, about the Crito, about the Phaedo, about the Euthyphro, we don't know. Uh, we don't know how actually historical those are and how embellished they could be. They probably are embellished. But we know, at least for the apology, that that was probably historically similar. Yeah. So there's a couple famous images and quotes that Socrates is well known for that all come from the apology. And one of those is that he likens himself to a gadfly. Now, depending on where you live in the world, you may not be familiar with what a gadfly is. Down here in Texas, we're very familiar with flies that we call horse flies. And they're rather large flies. They're a biting fly. In fact, I was bitten by one when I was a teenager on my calf. And uh, I remember the pain and then also looking at the bite actually drew blood from my calf. <laughs> so, uh, so horse flies, they're very big and, and they bite. And a gadfly is very similar. It's a biting fly. And there's like regular house flies. And then you got these guys and you want to avoid them. And Socrates in the trial calls himself a gadfly, something along the lines of, uh, he says, I am the gadfly for Athens to sting it into action, you know, the body politic. This is my job. This is my calling to be this obnoxious guy, to sting to life everyone in terms of, uh, of, how, of what a good life is. And so anyway, gosh, I don't know what to say about that, but that's, that's what he likened himself to was this gadfly. So, you know, even he, he himself admitted that he's kind of a, an annoying, he's yeah, a pain. He's a pain. He's a pain. <laughs> and he knew it. Yeah. Socrates calling himself that says something. Uh, the big, one of the, one of the two big quotes other than, other than the gadfly one that's really famous is the only thing that I know is that I know nothing. I think that's, that's very representative of Socrates's kind of purpose why he's questioning all these people because he wants to know and he comes to this point because the, the oracle of Delphi tells one of Socrates's followers basically that Socrates is the smartest person let me revise that because it's important that Socrates there is no one who is more wise than Socrates now people could be this at the same wiseness level but there's no one more wise than he is and the reason it comes down to is that he understands that he knows nothing. Now, do we know if this is like kind of a snarky Socrates point? Maybe it's been debated, but I think that the content of the the quote is rather an embodiment of how we see Socrates live and, and his gadfly kind of self, you know? Yeah. And I also think of sort of out of context of the apology, but, but the quote itself is sort of this admission that, Maybe the end of wisdom is realizing that there are a few true answers out there in the world. And so, you know, the wisest thing you might be able to know is be able to admit that you actually know nothing. For sure. 
last quote, probably the most famous, the most contested, the unexamined life is not worth living. It's a very, very bold quote. I think we've talked about this one before on a, on a past episode. He's not saying that if you don't examine your life, you, should, you shouldn't live. I think you can interpret it as him saying, like, there's so much more to life if you examine it. But I think really he's saying, like, that's kind of our purpose in living. Um, our purpose in living, we have this capacity of reasoning, and we need to examine things in our life and, and check out if, if they're true or not, because we have this ability to even test that. That's right. All the schools that follow Socrates, uh, introspection is key to living a good life. If you don't know yourself, then how are you going to know anything else? Because you are always in relation to everything else. And Andrew mentioned the Oracle of Delphi earlier. One of the three famous inscriptions that are on the Oracle of Delphi or the Temple of Delphi is know thyself. I mean, it's a key tenet to, to Socrates. And yeah, he's not saying like, if, if you don't bother to examine your life, you know, go jump off a bridge or something. That's not what he's saying. Uh, he's saying, but, but in order to live the good life, in order to live a life that, uh, that is flourishing, that includes eudaimonia, you have to be able to examine yourself and be introspective, reflective. And all this goes to, you know, the Greeks' emphasis on the ability of, of human reason. You know, human reason was this spark of the divine that separates us from the animals that all human beings have. And it is that rationality that allows us to be reflective of our experience, whereas animals are not able to be reflective of their experience. And so we can craft for ourselves this good life based on virtue if we go through the trouble to do it. And it still resonates loudly today. You know, we can, we can think, you can probably think of someone uh, in your own life that you know, you're like, man, they could use a, a little more examination <laughs> of their own life because yeah. they do some really idiotic things sometimes. Now, it's yeah. easy, you know, it's easy to point the finger. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but yeah, that, that's, that's what the unexamined life is. And, and all, like I said, all schools that come after Socrates, like this is a key idea. That was our introductory episode to Socrates. We've talked about him before, but we really tried to unpack him in his central tenets and, and claims in this episode. And we're going to be sticking with the character of Socrates in our next episode, Who is Plato? So if you are interested in Socrates and want to learn more about his literary character and why we chose to only talk about the first five dialogues, uh, make sure to check us out on next episode. All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning in this week for uh, our episode on the life of Socrates. We had a great time doing it. Yeah, I was super pumped. This is this is one of my favorite uh, favorite philosophical heroes of all time. So I'm super super happy to have shared my my interests with with everybody. But if you're interested in learning more about Socrates, please check out our website, uh, OpendoorPhilosophy.com where we will have our promised favorite edition, favorite translation of Socrates' last day corpus. Uh, so make, make sure to check us out there. You can also check us out on D underscore Parsonage at Twitter or Open Door Philosophy on Instagram. 
That's right. And if you have any questions for us that you would like for us to address on the show, or if you have questions about philosophy in general, or anything really, uh, feel free to email us at contact at opendoorphilosophy.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you next time with our What is Plato? Or not What is Plato, but uh, Who Was Plato? Um, And remember, when your life is in need of some philosophy, the door is always open. Thanks.